the time to return to our seats and open the Word of God, the Scriptures, and the part of our service where we worship through the Word of God being proclaimed, being read and and, and explained and applied to our lives. Galatians 4 is where you should turn in your Bible. Galatians chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. As you're turning there, Merry Christmas. This is the eve of Christmas Day, the day before Christmas. That's what's on our minds this morning, isn't it? And some people hear the word Christmas, they think of an evergreen tree in their home, decorated, lit up. Some people think of fireplaces and cozying up and Christmas music. Others think of presents and fictional characters created around a holiday. Many of us are thinking of the birth of Christ, our Savior, Jesus. But regardless of what normally comes to mind when we think of Christmas, you are invited along with all of us to think about Christmas, Christ's birth in biblical terms, in God's words, the Word of God. But I want to warn you as we begin to consider this God's way. The Bible's description of Christmas as Christ's birth and why He was born is not really a hallmark kind of story. This isn't a cartoon about a little bit of unhappiness that turns into some nice happiness at the end because of the joy of the season. It's not an account of how we as human beings have just lost our way a little bit and Jesus came to show us the way to fulfillment and and making our dreams come true as we follow our heart. (laughs) The story of Christmas actually really begins in a horrifying, terrifying way for us. And our passage here in Galatians 4 helps us see the reality of our terrible condition, our awful condition before God without Christ, before His birth, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His powerful resurrection, and His miraculous ascension. So be ready for some ugliness before we get to the beauty of Christmas in Jesus Christ. Let's read, let's study Galatians 4, 1 through 6 together. God says through Paul in verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, what very great and very precious promises you give to us in your word. Father, as we read and study together, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would be working in our hearts to cry out to you, Abba, Father, and that we would glorify Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Often as Christians, we can soften the message of Christmas, and for that matter, the gospel itself, in a way that lightens it, 
kind of lightens it up a little bit, makes it a little easier for the modern human mind to take and to, and to swallow, especially this time of year. You know, we like to talk about the baby Jesus. And we talk about the shepherds coming to visit the baby Jesus and the wise men who gave gifts. And, and we even say he came to save us. And it becomes a nice little story. And all that is true, but we've left out so much of what it takes to make this the real account of what happened and what Jesus came to actually do. This was Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, the most important event, set of events, in the history of the planet. There is nothing else as important and as necessary as Jesus coming to earth to save us from our sins. Galatians 4 helps us see the tragedy, our tragedy, but Jesus' victory over our tragedy, his victory over that, and why we should celebrate his birth. There are two parts here in these verses. In part one, verses one to three, we were slaves. We were slaves. In these words, Paul begins with, I mean. And it's not the way we use it today, like somebody has a, asks a question, and then, I mean, <laughs> you know, we hear that today. But this is a way of saying, in other words, let me say it this way, Paul says. And that means he's continuing an explanation of what he has been talking about to this point. Well, what is that? Well, he's been telling us that we as individuals, no matter where we came from, no matter what our background, history, or culture is, we are sinners before a holy God. We're all born under a cruel law. We're born under a curse. We're cursed. And we're unable to get ourselves out of the curse. We cannot obey the cold reality of the law. We're prisoners under the law. We're prisoners of sin. That's what Paul's been talking about to this point. The law constantly finds out when we've done something wrong. It's always there. It's, it's, it's more there than Santa Claus is said to be. <laughs> always watching. There's no hiding from the law. There's no explaining ourselves or justifying why we've sinned and why we haven't done what we were supposed to do and why we thought this or that and said this or that. We are condemned. We're guilty under the law. We're sentenced already to an eternal punishment in God's justice. That's what's fair. That's what's right before God because of our sin, because he's holy. And we've been studying how harsh this law is and how strict it is. And it's not because the law is bad, as we've been talking about. As we've seen, the law of God is perfect. It's holy. It's good. It, it, it comes from God. He's good and perfect and holy. And his law is also in fact, to love perfectly, because God is love, to love perfectly is to obey the law, to fulfill the law, every part of it. But the perfect law shows us how far, far, far away we are from perfect, how sinful we are. The, the ugliness that we talked about in, in Christmas, that's us because of our sin. That's the ugliness. We're not perfect. We can't be perfect. We can't even stop ourselves from sinning. We can't be joined together in unity as people. We cannot be joined together with God in a relationship or a fellowship with Him. Instead, we deserve His eternal wrath forever because of our sin. We are rebels against Him. But then Jesus came to change all of that, didn't He? So we need to understand the truth of our situation in terms of what God says so that we can then understand our salvation in Jesus Christ, what he's done, who he is, why he came, what he did, what he's going to do. That's what Christmas is all about. 
That's what Galatians has been explaining to us. Paul, the human author, explains a little bit more what he means. People, you and me, we who are sinners before God have been given a promise from God. The promise from God came to one man, Abraham, and it was a blessing, a blessing through Abraham to all nations, all people. Everyone on earth who is born and exists, we are heirs of that promise of blessing. The potential for that blessing is there. The problem is that God does not bless sin or sinners. He's not okay with sin. He gives us sunshine and rain. He blesses us with what we call everyday common grace of God, which is uncommon, but it's common to everybody. It is the goodness of God, but He doesn't bless sin. So how are we to receive the blessing of God in His promise? How can we inherit that promised blessing? Can we try to be better humans? Can we just try to be better people? That's what we hear a lot, right? Be nice, be good, be a better person. We can't. It doesn't work because we're trapped. We're imprisoned under the law, under sin. Remember, chapter 2 was very clear. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Justified, declared righteous. No one is righteous before God. We can't get there. So we are heirs of the promise of God, but we can't get it because of our condition before God. That's what we see in verse 1. The heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So Paul says, picture this. There's a boy whose father is rich. The boy has the promise of owning it all, but while he's a boy, he doesn't own anything. He has no part of it. Even in the tragic case of his father dying when he's still little, he is legally unable to own anything. He can't get it. There's no way for him to do it. In that sense, he's no different from a slave because the slave is in the home and works and lives and, and it receives the, the things that come from the, into the household and, and from the father, but there's no difference there. The, the boy is just as a slave. As long as he is a minor, he has people in charge of him. He has guardians. He has managers. The word for guardian here is not the same one that we saw in chapter 3, the, the strict disciplinarian that was always beating us down. Here, it's just the fact that our state is the same as a slave. We don't have control over ourselves before Jesus. When we're in the world, when we're imprisoned under sin, imprisoned under the law, we don't have control. We, we do what we're told by what and who has control over us. We've cut ourselves off from God's blessing through our sin. Now, for that boy whose father is rich, one day he can receive that inheritance, but it's at the discretion of the father, at the timing of the father, when he decides. It's not when the boy earns it. It's not anything dependent on the boy at all. It's up to the father who's decided when the boy will receive the inheritance. So look at verse 3. Paul says, in the same way also when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul refers to our condition under the law. Our position in sin, imprisoned, held captive, enslaved. So, you know, sometimes we get the picture of a prison where you're just sitting there doing nothing. No, it's worse than that. We were imprisoned and we were held captive, but we were also under the control of the elementary principles of the world. We were owned by, we were controlled by, we were compelled to work by the elementary principles of the world. 
What does that mean? What, what are elementary principles of the world? Well, that's just one word in the original Greek that refers to an element and a line or a succession. And it came to actually um, most of the time refer to the alphabet. You know, when you're teaching a, a child the alphabet, the whole line of letters and the elementary basic knowledge of the alphabet. Here it means anything in the world that man comes up with independently from God. It's anything that you could begin by saying, you know, everybody knows, fill in the blank, right? The elementary principles of the world. It includes anything and everything that God has not said, but mankind has said. In some cultures, it's superstition. Everybody knows you don't go to that mountain. You don't go to that cave. It's haunted, right? Or, or the, the, the superstition. In fact, I was, at a, I was stationed at one Air Force base and, and way out on the base and some empty property, there was this old building, this old airplane hangar. And the, the, there was superstition there was you don't go into that hangar because there's, it's haunted. Uh, strange things happen in that hangar and, and strange um, things happen in there that, that people have told us about. And so I decided to walk through the hangar. <laughs> Knowing who God is and knowing, knowing my Lord, I thought, well, if it's time, then he'll take me. And uh, nothing happened. It was just, everybody knows you don't go through that. You know, the elementary principles of the world. Um, spells, ceremonies in other cultures. Uh, some of the, the cultures around the world that, you know, they try to placate gods or, or demons so that you can get what you want or you can stay out of trouble. But even in our culture, everybody knows uh, people read horoscopes. They look to astrology. Everybody knows about good luck charms, good luck rituals, especially with sports, right? Right? You're, not, you're laughing already, right? I mean, I've got to wear this jersey or my team won't win, right? I've got to do these certain things or, or my team will lose and all of these things that everybody knows. You have to do these things, Right? More mainstream in our culture. Everybody knows the universe, the world, and everything in it is just an accident made by a random chance over billions of years. Everybody knows this. The elementary principles of the world include everything that man invents and that goes against what God has said. And it can even include taking God's law and misusing it, as we've been learning about, as we've been seeing. Everybody knows you follow the Ten Commandments and that makes you a good person. Right? That's what everybody knows around us. But that's not what the law of God was intended for. Remember, the law was not intended to teach us how to be better people. The law of God was intended to show us how bad we are in our sin, to expose that. It reveals us sin, and it reveals how bad and how ugly sin is. The law is perfect, and it's the way God intended. It works perfectly to expose our sin. <laughs> it works perfectly that way. And there's nothing better. We can't just go to God like when we went to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table this, this morning. We can't just go to God and just feel really bad about ourselves and just put ourselves down and just try to drag ourselves through the mud. That's not what, <laughs> that's not what makes us humble before God. It's his law that humbles us rightly before him, exposing sin, and it works perfectly. That's what it was for. We see God's holiness. We see the, the purity and the perfection of God. And before that, we fall before him and we're humbled before him. And it works perfectly for that. But as a way to get saved, as a way to be saved, it just shreds us. It rips us apart. It's horrible at saving us because it was never meant to do that. But all of these elementary principles of the world, as ridiculous as some of them are, 
and as appealing as others are, they're actually what enslave us as human beings. That's what Paul says here. This, this is what enslaves us. We're slaves of what everybody knows, what the world teaches. We're owned by it. We're controlled by it. We're compelled to obey it all. And much of the time, we're not even aware because it gets fed to us so constantly, so conditionally. We're, we're, we're conditioned to think the thoughts of the world. We never realized how steeped in these elementary principles of the world we are because it comes as young children in school, by textbooks, by our entertainment, in movies and TV. Oh, many people don't watch TV anymore. So streaming services, <laughs> uh, music, all of that. The, the world teaches us and puts these things into our minds so that we begin to think like the world and we come to believe that we're just matter that doesn't matter. We're just chemical reactions, we're watery bags of bones, our, you know, our, our experiences, our thoughts just get stored in a chemical, electrical mishmash of gray matter, and it ceases to exist when we die. It's a really pessimistic view of our existence. Or we're trained, on the other hand, to believe that our real problems arise from everybody else and everything else around us. We're actually very special, very important people. And all that really matters is who I am and what I want and how I can get it. So as long as I don't hurt anybody else, the universe is all about me and is for me. As long as I project positivity, I'll receive positivity. <laughs> Rather than the extreme negativity, this is the extreme positivity and naivety. Neither of those extremes are right but that's what the world feeds us. And will we buy into one of those or a combination of those? But the answer isn't somewhere in the middle either. <laughs> the answer is in the word of God, in the gospel, Jesus, who was born on earth at Christmas. The answer for people around us, by the way, brothers, is not to mock them, sisters, for buying into the elementary principles of the world, to mock people or one another. It's not to bring people shame or to try to cancel people. It's not to try to argue people so that they see our intellectual superiority because our arguments are so much better than theirs. The answer for people around us is Jesus. That leads us to part two. Part one, we, are slave. we were slaves. Slaves to the elementary principles of the world under the, the prison and the enslavement of law and sin destined to live right now either in contrived happiness or pessimistic fatalism in route to hell, but now part two. This is the celebration of Christmas, part two. In Jesus, we are sons, verses four through seven. We are children of God. So as children, we had no control over anything. We had no control over the inheritance, the covenant of God's promises. We couldn't dictate anything about it. Who would it be applied to when it would come? We had managers and stewards. We had the culture teaching us and holding us down. We had the law restricting us. All of those beliefs that we taught, that we had bought into. But when the fullness of time had come, God acted. Remember in verse 2, it is the date set by the Father that determines when the children receive that inheritance. In verse 4, God determined the fullness of time. God had set the time. He had prophesied about the time. He told us about it in his scriptures. When it became time, by God's guidance and at the exact moment, he acted. And it was and it still is the defining moment of our existence on this planet. The most important event the world has ever known came about at God's appointed time, at the fullness of time. 
Now, we have guesses for why it's called the fullness of time, why it was the right time. The near universal Greek language at the time, I mean, you know, people were now speaking or could speak the same language. The Jewish synagogues that had been planted outside of Israel because of the exile of God's people that enabled the church to reach out to Jews and Christians at the time. The Roman road system, how extensive the roads were and how how much relatively safer they were so that people could go and reach the farthest parts of the empire. What's known as the Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome, the relative peace where people could travel and, and they would be safe. The Old Testament preparation, all of these things came together at this point in this moment in history that we call the fullness of time. And some may question the relative peace the world enjoys, you know, maybe it's more peaceful today. Maybe it would have been better if Jesus had come today because look at all the technology we have. and We could reach across the world instantly and we have better translation capabilities. But we could add that the fullness of time referred here to how most people believed in, a, in, in truth, universal, non-contradictory truth that is missing in so many places today. It was in God's infinite wisdom that it was the right length of time that humanity had tried so many false gods, so many wrong answers, and so much foolishness that God said, no, now is the time. I also believe that today probably wouldn't have been as uh, effective when Jesus was doing the signs that he did to show who he is because there's so much CGI happening in our, in our entertainment. Nothing surprises people anymore. Nothing impresses anyone anymore. We've seen it all, right? We've seen people fly. We've seen people flip. We've seen people, all kind, you know, people be healed. We've seen, and it's just dismissed so easily. But at the right time, God sent forth his son, and that's when he did it, at the time that he dictated. Whether it was any of those things or all of those or none of those, it was the fullness of time in God's plan, and he acted. What did he do? There were two actions of God. A, God sent forth his son. In verses 4 and 5, this word for sent forth is a word that means to dispatch on a mission. I need you to go do this. Take care of this. That means, brothers and sisters, that the son existed with the father, and the father then turned to the son and said, now go do this. And he sent him out on that mission. The father and the son were already existing. Now, why did the father send the son, 1 John 4, 14, to be the savior of the world? How did he send the son? Two aspects. He was born of woman and he was born under the law. So he was born of woman, now on its own. That sounds pretty benign, right? That sounds pretty ordinary. He came and he was, he, was, he was a person who was born of a woman. That's how it always happens. Contrary to what many in the culture teach us and tell us and want to believe, it is always that a person is born of a woman. <laughs> but even more, this is God. God the Son the, who was with God the Father. He came down and was born as a human being, just like we are. The infinite God, infinite in power, in wisdom, in goodness, in sovereignty, became confined into the limitations of a human being, meager in power, limited in knowledge. He never stopped being God, but he took on the nature of humanity in every way without our sinfulness. He was born of woman. He was not born of man and woman coming together. He was born of just woman by the Virgin Mary. But in all other respects, other than sin, he was just like us. He came as one of us. So that included being born under the law. Jesus felt the heavy weight of the law on himself. 
Now, he never experienced the punishment or the discipline for breaking the law from God, but the weight of the law that crushes every one of us, he held it up on himself perfectly through his entire life. Every moment of every day he obeyed, he entered our prison. He became one of us and he experienced all that we experience, limitation, temptation, no way out, being locked down, being imprisoned by sin and the curse and the law, yet he obeyed the law perfectly and he fulfilled it. What is the fulfillment of the law? What, what are the two commandments? If you boil the whole thing down, it's to love God, your, your God, with your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, with everything you've got, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did that perfectly. Psalm 40, verse 8, was always true of him. David said this, and he spoke this, and he wrote this psalm, but it was true of him only on his best days and only partially. It was always true of Jesus. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. It was a labor of joy and love for his father that compelled him to obey perfectly. But we've already said the law was not intended to save, right? So how does the law factor in with Jesus' life? I mean, just because he fulfilled it doesn't mean we're going to be saved. Just because he fulfilled the law Remember, the purpose of the law is to expose sin. It it, it acts like an x-ray, and it shows us and reveals. But for Jesus, it showed no flaw, no blemish, no sin. The holy law of God showed Jesus to be holy as God is holy. Not so that the law could save us when Jesus fulfilled it, but so that Jesus could save us after he fulfilled it. That's what he came to do. That's why the Father sent forth the Son. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. That's us. We were born under the law, under the curse. We were imprisoned. To the, and the, the sin ex, was exposed by the law. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We knew what, no way out. We didn't know how to get out. There was no way for us to get out until God sent forth his Son to redeem us. At the fullness of time, he did that. Born of a woman, born under the law in order to redeem us. And remember that redeem means to purchase. To purchase for yourself, for your own use. You buy it and it becomes yours. That's what God did for us in Jesus. What was the price to redeem us? He came forth from the Father, born as a human being, born under the law to shed his blood, to give himself, to purchase us. This birth of this life that we celebrate at Christmas, he was born to die after living a perfectly righteous life to redeem us. He purchased us out of slavery and, and, and prison. We were who were under the law and under sin. To what? Verse five. So that we might receive adoption as sons. He purchased us for himself at the cost of Jesus' perfect life for his purpose, for his glory, But he didn't purchase us to make us robotic slaves. Automatically, we start obeying everything that he said and did. No, he purchased us and made us sons. Adoption. He adopted us in Jesus through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when my son does something wrong, he doesn't stop being my son, right? There's a break in fellowship. There's a break in in our getting along, (laughs) in, in being together well. But the relationship never changes. He doesn't stop being my son. In Jesus, we become sons of God. That relationship comes and it never changes. Nothing ever breaks that relationship. 
No longer, brothers and sisters, is there a potential for the blessing of God. We haven't cut ourselves off any longer because I become a child of God in Jesus so that his blessing becomes mine. I mean, a sinner being blessed by God? How does that happen? It's impossible. Because I've been redeemed, I've been purchased by Jesus, I've been set free from the law and sin, I've been declared righteous, that's justified, I've been made his son, and it's all through adoption. What what a blessing, what a reason to celebrate Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, and it's all through adoption. And people today, when they adopt children, they will tell you how expensive it is. It's, it, they rightly complain about that, you know, that, that it's so expensive that it costs so much, but the cost for Jesus to adopt us was his life. And the picture of adoption is so beautiful for this picture of the gospel because parents come and they decide to take in a child and treat that child as if he were their own. And God does that. But he goes even further because parents, when they bring in a child, can't change the DNA of that child But God makes us new all over again. He recreates us and he gives us a new creation, a new body. One of these days, a new body, a new spirit, a new heart. And he transforms us from dead to alive, from slaves and prisoners to sons. That's what Jesus' mission was and that's what he came to do. That's why God sent him forth. That's what he did. God sent forth his son. B, God sent forth his spirit in verses six and seven. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. All of those who are sons of God have the spirit of God. Now it says God has sent. But it's really the same word in the same tense as what God did when he sent forth his son. The same action, the same word, the verb of God the Father. He sent forth his son. He sent forth his spirit. Did you catch this reference, brothers and sisters, to our triune God? Our three-in-one God. There are four people mentioned here. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Spirit, and there's me and you. So many more than four, but us together. How much work are any of us doing in these verses? How much am I doing to contribute to this? None. God's doing all of this work. The three persons of the three-in-one God are at work to justify, to redeem, to make us children of God. And to keep us that way. Now, Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would come. You remember when he was with his disciples in John 14? And he told them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, Jesus said, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Later in verse 26, he reveals that helper is the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in the name of Jesus. Now, twice Jesus says the Father will send him. And then twice he says that he himself will send the Spirit. And so he comes to the people of Jesus, God's adopted sons, as Jesus said, and he will be with us forever, and he will be in us, in us. Now, specifically to his disciples, Jesus explained this about the Holy Spirit in John 16. He said, I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. And that implies that the Holy Spirit has authority, that the Holy Spirit does speak, that he does guide, but he's not going to do it on his own. He's going to do it under the authority of Jesus and the Father. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
He would even reveal to the apostles uh, the future of the things that would come, and they would write those down. They would record what they were given. But listen to what Jesus says next about the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said, what he, will take what, he will take what is mine and, I, and will declare it to you. So what the Spirit hears from the Son and the Father It's the same information, the same thing that the Father says, the Son says, the Holy Spirit hears and shares it with the the apostles and with us. And in doing that, the Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit will do as all of this work is happening and all of this is taking place, that the Father and the Son are sharing information, the Holy Spirit takes that, declares it, and it will glorify Jesus. So he's called here the spirit of his son here in Galatians 4. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of his son, Jesus. But the Holy Spirit comes and he remains with us, as Jesus said, in us. And as we read here in Galatians 4, in our hearts. And this is the mission the Holy Spirit has in our hearts. He causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. We acknowledge what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to make us sons by adoption. And so we cry out to him, Dad, Daddy, Father. This is the mission that the Holy Spirit was sent out to do. He causes us to cry this out. We acknowledge that. And it's the same word that Jesus uses in, Matthew, in, in, excuse me, in Mark chapter 14. Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word. Pater is the Greek translated to father here for us. But it's that close, intimate, respectful term from a child to his father. And listen, that was unknown. That was forbidden before this point, before Jesus came and and adopted us, before the father adopted us in Jesus. That was forbidden. You don't call God your father. You can't do that. It's impossible for a sinful, finite human being like me to call God, the holy, infinite God, my Father. But that's what Jesus does, the impossible. That's what the Father does, the impossible. That's what the Holy Spirit does, the impossible. God, working together in himself, does the impossible to make us God's own children. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit himself comes to be in us, to cry out to God as Father. And that's part of the change that happens in us when we repent of our sin, turning away from our sin, turning to Jesus as our Savior, and we believe in Him. That's part of the change because the Holy Spirit comes into the center of us. That's our heart, the very center of our being, our our thoughts, our emotions, our actions, our decisions, all that we think and say and do and feel is all in our heart. That's what this word means here in this context. He comes in and he reorients it all Godward rather than inward or outward. Do you want to know what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you want to know what the effect of the Holy Spirit living in you will be? According to John 16, it's glorifying Jesus. According to Galatians 4 here, it's crying out to God as Father. And there's more. There's so much more as we'll see later in Galatians, but this is what it means for us this morning in this passage And anyone who claims to be a child of God who is not glorifying Jesus or not crying out to God as father, as dad, should question whether they really are. Have I really come to know Jesus as my Lord, my Savior? 
When we live and seek to glorify Jesus, when we cry out to him as Father, because he is our Father, the one who provides, who protects, who gives and adopts, who does so much for us, then we have good reason for continued faith and hope in him. That's his work in us. It's a relationship that's impossible outside of salvation in Jesus, but it's a relationship that becomes the controlling center of our being because of his salvation in us. As verse 17 says, our very identity changes from slaves to sons and therefore heirs of God. Not potential heirs, but true heirs who have the promise of God. Now watch this because we don't get this in English, but even more, look at verse 7. So you, this you here is singular. It's personal, it's intimate. You, Michelle. (laughs) You, Bob. You, each one of us in Jesus, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Why does it say through God? Because God did all of this work. It was all his work for you, for me, the least deserving. And it all came about because Jesus was born on this earth. He had to be God so that he could, etern- he could offer himself as an eternal sacrifice to redeem us. He had to be man, to be, much, uh, to be like us, to be one of us, to offer himself in our place to redeem us. He had to be sinless or he couldn't offer any substitute of himself. And he had to be Jewish to know and, and learn about God's law and to fulfill all of God's law. He, he had to be God. He had to be man. He had to be righteous and sinless. And he was all of that and more. And he gave himself to redeem us, to adopt us. Two legal transactions that change everything for us. So that now we live for the glory of our God and our Father and Jesus. So our application here is to cry out to God as Father. Cry out to God as Father in the Spirit. That's what he does in us. That's his work in us to cry out to God as Father. To adopt us and cause us to cry out and then glorify Jesus. That's his work. That's what he came to do. That's what he was sent forth to do to cause us to glorify Jesus and to cry out to him. As we celebrate Christmas today, this evening, Lord willing, we can all come back together tonight to celebrate. As we celebrate Christmas tomorrow, keep this in mind. Not necessarily the peppermint mochas, the presents, the Christmas trees. Those will all fill our minds and our, and our senses. But remember Jesus. Father God, we remember Jesus. Father, we know who he is who he was. Lord, we know what he came to do. God, so often we forget. We don't remember, Lord, that we belong to you, a perfect God, our, our perfect Father, the one who has crafted us, made us, formed us, Lord, in your very own image. Lord, we cut ourselves off from you. We rebelled against you in sin. Father, it was and is ugly. Sin is so ugly. And it it, it kills, Father. It curses. It cuts us off. Father, it does so many terrible things to us and against us, Lord. And there is nothing that we can do to fix ourselves, but you sent forth your Son in the fullness of time, Father, to save us, to redeem us, to deliver us, to justify us. 
God, what a blessing. Father, what a Savior this Jesus is. Lord, he didn't come to do it without succeeding, Father. He was successful in saving his people from their sins. God, we praise you. We, we exalt you. Lord, help us to remember more and more every day, to think your thoughts, Lord, to not be transformed by this world, but to be transformed by your word, to think your thoughts, to love as you love, to live as you would have us to live for your glory, for the glory of your son, Jesus, as we cry out to you, Abba, Father, in your spirit, we praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name.